what were you doing when you first started? Well, when I first started, I went to work on the 5761 strip and shovel, which the 6360 replaced later on. So from the very beginning, you were working on this big strip and shovel that was at Captain, whichever one it was? Yes. And were you transferred there from another mine? I mean, obviously, you had to have gotten your uh, feet wet somewhere. You don't just start out running machinery. No, I wasn't, but I've been around machinery. And uh, I could mention Bobby Heats, because Bobby Heats was down there on the 5761, and Charlie Schimpf was down there. So Dale Walker brought me down to the shovel, and he said, Fred, you stick with Charlie Schimpf, and he'll show you, and Bobby Heath will show you, and uh, have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things were different then. You didn't, we didn't take no physical or nothing. What were your first uh, thoughts? Were you intimidated by the idea of running that machine? No, not really, because <clears throat> I'd worked my way up. That was uh, It didn't start right away. And uh, I was intimidated by the size of it. And I could give you the size and dimensions of it. That was a handout. But. Uh, oh, yeah, I'd like you to give me the dimensions of it. Okay. I'll just read them off of this card. This was given to me. Uh, what. Because I was, we was one of the first ones to work on that machine. The Marion 6360 shovel is one of a kind. And it was engineered by the Marion Tower Shovel Company, specifically for the Captain Mine. And when I say specifically for the Captain Mine, it was uh, a two. We they mine. We mine two seams of coal. And nobody else around here had success doing that. So that's why it was built the way it was. And it was in operation in 1965 and remains the largest shovel in the world. The crawlers in the lower frame are practically identical to that used to move the missiles into the launch area at Cape Kennedy. But that's not exactly right either, because I've been down there and looked at that, and the captain's undercarriage was a lot bigger and a lot stronger built. So the very size of the 6360 is so tremendous that it must be seen to be the appreciate. It must be seen to be appreciated. <clears throat> it has 250 foot high which compares to a 25-story building and weighs a strategic 29 million tons. The 6360 is as heavy as a combined weight of string of automobiles stretching 28 miles long that 11 times around Indianapolis Speedway. With a boom length of 215 foot and 180 cubic yard, 
bucket, this machine could sit on the 50-yard line of a football field, lift 20 Volkswagens at one end, and sling around and dump them into the opposite end, all in one swing of the shovel. It was a really amazing machine. Was it difficult or easy to run? No, it was It was some of the modern technology, Bill. Uh, the respond time, and I can't remember, and it don't show in here, but it was like one hundredth of a second from the time the operator moved his handle up or down. That's how quick it respond. And it was all... Uh, chip fed where the old shovels had contacts so if you pulled a hoist lever on an old shovel just one one contact it would move very slow and if you pull the second one you'd get more power and more speed this one you had all the speed and power you wanted whenever you pulled that lever and how were you the primary operator on the machine a fill-in operator no. See, in a coal mine, uh, we were a four-man crew, and I was an oiler on it, or a mechanic, whichever way you want to say it, and I relieved the operator for 30 minutes for his lunch, and he went to his lunch, and I filled in then for 30 minutes, and they had a shandy downstairs that they ate in, so I was up there running it by myself. And when I saw the smoke coming out, I shut it down because it was coming between the decks. So let's back up a little bit. Um, September the 9th, 1991, you went to work that day on day shift, and there wasn't any inclination that there was anything, you know, major faulty with the machine leading up to the day that it burned. No, no, it wasn't uh, the day that it burned. Uh, the only thing you got people have to understand is that this machine has 10,000 gallon of hydraulic oil that we carried on the machine because it's set on hydraulic jacks that kept it level. So when I come to work, there was a warning light that would flash periodically off and on, and because we evidently had a leak someplace, but it was nothing serious, you know. It, we've seen that before. So with that oil in them jacks, everything above the crawler frame was on them jacks. So they had, I don't know how many hundreds of pounds of pressure on them, and that's what caused it to burn up because when once, I was the first one into the fire, and the only one that I know of today to my knowledge, and I had to go through four rooms and I had a 50-pound fire extinguisher I grabbed from downstairs. But in my haste, I failed to look at the extinguisher. Well, it was out of pressure. So I carried it through the four rooms and uh, got there nothing whenever I squeezed the trigger because it didn't have any pressure. So I had to go back through the four rooms and got another fire extinguisher and I put the fire out but the walls and the grease had got so hot down there, no more than I run out of the fire extinguisher, it ignited again. 
So I've done that two or three times, and then it got so hot that I couldn't go in there anymore. So you were able to get the fire knocked down, but because the because the hydraulic fluid continued to pump, it's squirting out just like a blowtorch. And so it was sort of a losing battle because as much as you were trying to put it out, the fire was being fed just the same. Yeah, well, the walls and that was so hot there wouldn't be any flame at all, and I think we're going to make this. And then just the more that I run out of fire extinguisher. It'd go just like lighting a gas stove. Woof, then we'd have fire. Now, when you were operating the machine, and of course the primary operator, who? What was his name? Who okay, were, his name was Gene Miller. So you were relieving Gene Miller that day. Yes. And as you were operating, I mean, did was the machine functioning normally, and you just smelled smoke? No, I could see the smoke coming, and it was operating normally. Hmm. But like I said, every once in a while, this warning light would come on because it is like a low tire gauge on your automobile that says you got a low tire. And that's what we took it for granted that we got oil, a little oil in someplace. If it would have stayed on and flashed, we'd have shut down. But it wouldn't. It'd just come on for a minute and then it'd go off. Yeah, I've got that same warning that comes on on my truck, and I've paid no attention to it at all. Well, that, that's the same thing we do. Yeah. So you try to get this fire out, and then you get trapped on the machine? No, no. There's four. We had a four-man crew. Uh, Jerry Sternberg was a groundman, and Gary Andrews was a welder. And you got to understand, this machine has an elevator in the middle of it. It's three stories. And Gary got on the elevator, because I was running out of fire extinguishers, without thinking, and went upstairs to get me more fire extinguishers, and the power went off. So he had no power other than to climb down ladders on the side of the machine, where it was getting pretty, pretty, pretty hot already. So, so he was trapped upstairs on the second floor. But you were not trapped. Well, I was not trapped. I was, we, I was down on the cold getting in the clear. And I didn't even realize that Gary wasn't with us until we got down on the cold. By then, there was more people coming and fire equipment. <clears throat> and one of the crew members said, hey, Fred, Gary's trapped upstairs. So I was on the five cold. So I climbed up the high wall to the sixth cold, and there I could make contact with with Gary. And Gary said, Fred, it's really getting hot up here. I'm going to need help. And I said, Gary, there are stairways. Go up to the top of the gantry. You'll be safe up there on the gantry. That's the very top of the machine. Well, I figured with all that metal and everything, between him that he'd be good there. And he was for a while. But they brought a, they sent a cherry picker up there. They thought we could reach him with a cherry picker. And I got in the basket and swung it around to the roof. And I was about 10 foot away from Gary because we couldn't get any closer in the cherry picker basket. And Gary was having, uh, nervous questions 
he had all kinds of suggestions, and none of them in my mind would come out okay. He talked about maybe jumping or maybe trying to slide down the handle or something. And I said, Gary, that ain't going to work. You're going to end up bad. And he said, and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and that's when I knew that I had to do something. He said, Fred, you got to get me down. And I said, I will, Gary. So in the meantime, a company official got up there and said, Fred, don't worry. But we got a helicopter coming, and he'll pick him up. And Gary reminded me again. He said, I want off of here now. And I said, I'll be up there. So when I got into the cherry picker basket and swung around to the boom, uh, the company people advised me uh, not to do that. Pretty, pretty, pretty strongly advised me. So I went to the boom and then the support cables, that's the cables that run from the boom to the gantry. That's where I went down to get Gary. And I told Gary, get you a safety belt, Gary, I'm coming. But what I really wanted to do was just spend time up there with Gary. And I thought, well, I'll get a free helicopter ride out of this. <laughs> so, but anyway, before I started on them, down them cables, well, I said, oh, Lord, I'm going to need your help. So don't leave me now. So down them cables I went and I got to Gary and I said, Gary, we'll just, let's just sit here and wait. The helicopter will come and we'll get off of here. And Gary said, no, Fred. He said, I can't stand it up here. And I said, no, we'll be all right, Gary. And I said, Gary said, I, I, I want down, Fred. And I said, all right, I'll get you down. Anyway, what? <clears throat> I put the safety belt on him and, we started down the cables, and he'd been on vacation. That was his first day back. And we got started, and there were wood blocks on them cables that we had to go around, and we got to about the second wood block, and Gary said, now that it's dark already, and there's lights all over the pit, flashing lights. You know how things go when there's a fire. All kind of excitement going on. And Gary says, Fred, I can't make it. I said, hold it, Gary. I said, don't look down. Just look up at the skies or whatever. We're going to be all right. And I got him around that block and said, come on, Gary, let's go some more. And when we got to the next one, he said, Fred, I'm done. I can't make it. And I said, Gary, think about it. I said, if you don't make it, they're going to fire my you-know-what. And he, he giggled a little bit about it then. <laughs> he relaxed. So we got on down the line, and he said, I'm done. And I said, no, Gary, look how close we are to the end so we can get to the boom. So that's how he came down. And I didn't really, I didn't want to, I couldn't leave him up there. Is that memory vivid even to this day for you? Yes. Were you, yeah. were you afraid? No. Why weren't you afraid? Because I trust God. And I knew I could do it. You know, it wasn't like trying to swim the Mississippi River or something and you never didn't know whether you could make it or not. I knew I could make it. 
that it was Gary that I was worried about. Do you still talk to Gary occasionally uh, to this day? Gary, yes. I talk to him and I see him, yeah. And uh, I haven't talked to him for a while. Do you think he'd be willing to uh, talk to me for this little thing I'm putting together? Probably would. Well, if you won't mind talking to him and asking him about it, uh, I'd appreciate that. Um, well, Gary Andrews is his name. Okay. And I don't have his phone number. And uh, Where does he live? In Fentonville. Okay. I'll try to reach out to him. I, I wanted to ask you about the rumor that has persisted over the years that the shovel was burned intentionally because the company wanted rid of it. Now, I don't know about that, but I knew I know about the testimony that I give uh, larger London insurance. Uh, there was this. There was no way this could have been arranged. This fire, because I saw where the leak was, where the hot bearing was that ignited it. And like I said, as far as I know, uh, according to all the testimonies and everything, I was the only one that seen the fire inside where the fire started. Well, I guess what led people to think that it was odd was because the co- you know the company had another shovel sitting there ready to replace the captain uh, the week after it caught fire. That's true to an extent, but that shovel they done sold some some of the parts off of it because it was going to be cut down. I think it was scheduled to be cut down within a few months. So that so, shovel wasn't sitting there really ready to go. It was sitting no, there. No, no, no. We had to send, had to send people down there and work on it. Ah, okay. I didn't realize that part of the story. And uh, I think Arch's settlement was, they give, it cost, cost Bill Mullins $25 million when they built it. That's the number they give us. And uh, I think they got like $30-some million out of it then. What do you remember about that machine other than the burning of it? Was there a other specific story about working on that machine that stands out to you? Yes, there is. It was the most precise, accurate machine that big ever built. Uh The tolerances were so small, and there'll never be anything that big ever built again with the tolerances is what I'm talking about, like backlash in gears and uh, loss movement. Everything was so precision built. And what a great fact of engineering it was. Yeah, it's really a shame that they didn't save that bucket off of it, and that that thing isn't sitting somewhere in southern Illinois as just a piece of history. Yes, yes. Yes, it is. And uh, Bobby Heap was running it years before when the sticks broke in it. It was cold weather, and the sticks broke and fell out. 
What does that mean? That means that the handles that went from the gantry down to the bucket, if you've seen a picture of it, and the, the cold, they had cracks in them, and the weather was cold, and when it gets cold, metal gets brittle, and Bobby was running it, and they broke, fell to the cold. And nobody got hurt. We was down, I don't know, maybe three months with that. My God, that would have been something to see. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. And then I was on the gantry. Now, let me make this clear because there will be coal miners saying, oh, Fred didn't give accurate report. I worked 38 years at the mine. But some of them years, I'd worked on other machines, big machines that the company had. And then when they went to sizing down, I come, had the seniority to come back to the big shovel. I was on it when the first bucket was taken out, and I took the last bucket out with it. Huh. So that's kind of amazing. 